As Justin mentioned throughout our service, today is a unique day in the church calendar. It's been celebrated by Christians for centuries and centuries, and it's often called Palm Sunday. Um, And this particular Sunday marks Jesus' entrance into the city of Jerusalem. And so we're going to read an account of that event or that occasion, which is in Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 44. Um, But before we get there, here's what I want you to look for as we read, because after we read, I'm going to pray, and then my introduction to this passage is going to be very brief. Um, But here's what I want you to look for as we read this passage in a moment. When Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem, he was claiming to be the king, the one true king. Um, The crowd even shouts in one of these verses that we're going to read, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Um, But as we read, you need to see what a different king he was claiming to be and really is, um, a different kind of king, a new kind of king, unique to what the world had ever seen previously or since. And so I want you to look for this new kind of king that Jesus claims to be as we read together this passage in Luke chapter 18, which you can find in your bulletin on page 12, and you can follow along as I read. Um, actually, it's Luke 19. I don't know why I've been saying 18. Um, Luke 19 beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, that's Jesus, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Let's go before Him now briefly and ask for His help. Let's pray. Father, we do come asking for Your help because we understand that this is not man's Word. This is Your Word breathed out, and we need to hear the voice of our Maker and our Redeemer. Father, as we look at Your Word, we pray that You would help us this morning, that You would give us eyes to see with faith, that we might see our King, the Lord Jesus. And Father, would You remind us this morning as we often pray week after week, that you would help us to see that we indeed are far more broken than we could ever imagine. But because of our King and because of what He has done for us, at the same time, we are also far more loved and secure and accepted and approved of than we could have ever dared dream possible. Help us to see this and change us by this good news, we pray. For it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. Well, here's, here's my brief inter- introduction that, that I promised you. Um, whatever your thoughts are about Jesus, uh, the Bible throughout clearly portrays Jesus as king, um, a new kind of king. And I know this is a big statement to just throw out there at, at the beginning, and, and especially if you're here this morning and you're not a believer or you're very new to Christianity, but l- let me just put this out there and then we'll look at the story together. Um, here it is. The Bible throughout is saying that Jesus is the King, the one true King, and He is the King you really have been looking for and longing for, and dreaming of your whole life, even if you don't know it um, this morning. He's a new kind of king who has come in order to put all things right in this broken world. He's the one king that can heal all the brokenness of your life. He's the one king under whose reign freedom and life flourish. He's the one king who will right every wrong, who will topple every injustice, who will lift from the dust all the oppressed and seat them with the princes. He's the one king who can satisfy the deepest desires and hopes and longings of your heart. He's a new kind of king. He's the king you've been looking for and longing for in dreaming of all your life. And that's the intro. And now I want us to walk through some simple points together as we get into this passage. And here they are. First, we need a king. Second, we need the true king. Third, we need the gentle king. And fourth, we need the crying king. So here that here, just give them to you one more time, and then I'll give them to you again throughout. We need a king. We need the true king, we need the gentle king, and we need the crying king. First, we need a king. And we're starting here because we kind of need to get a little running start into this passage by understanding our need for a king. 
you know, the whole of our lives really speaks to this. We need something to live for, right? We feel it deep within us. We need and we want something that will captivate our imaginations. We need something large enough, something grand enough, something beautiful enough to pull us into its orbit and give, a, give our lives meaning and hope. We need that, right? We need, and this is why, listen, this is why we go to the movies. This is why we read books. This is why we listen to music. This is what we, we're searching for in all of our causes that we hope will inspire us and give shape to our lives. Many of us have grown skeptical and cynical of this, but the angst and the frustration in our lives beneath our cynicism speaks to this all the more. Why are we so angry at those things or people that let us down that aren't in the end big enough to captivate our imaginations or to fulfill us or that in the end disappoint us? I mean, etched into our DNA, it is part of the human condition we need a king. We're looking for a king in this life. G.K. Chesterton is credited with saying, when man ceases to worship God, he does not worship nothing but worships everything instead. Right? Worship, being in awe, it is so central to our humanity that nothing can stop that impulse and that inclination to worship. We need to find something beautiful enough, grand enough to center our lives upon. We need a king. Uh, The novelist uh, David Foster Wallace, he gave a commencement uh, speech to Kenyon College just a couple of years before his suicide in 2008, and you could look it up online and read it. But here's how he put the same kind of sentiments from a totally different perspective. He said, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. See, here's the bad news. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so do our hearts. We need a king, and the only question is who or what we will crown as king in our lives, who or what we will bring into the very center of our lives to shape and define us, to embrace as ultimate beauty. To my knowledge, David Foster Wallace, he, he didn't claim to be a Christian, but, but at one point he gave a compelling reason to worship some sort of religious God, because as he puts it, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. This is what he says. If you worship money and things, if they are where, you're t- if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough and never feel you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will never ever more, you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, 
always on the verge of being found out. Listen, we need a king, but the hard truth is this. The kings we're so often crowning, whether they come in the form of money or sex or intellect or power or relationships or social status or comfort or security or success, and the list goes on and on, right? Every one of those kings will eat you alive and force you to die a million deaths in order to get them. The things we've crowned are strangling the life out of us, oppressing us. They're turning us cold and bitter and cynical. We need a king. We've got to center our lives on something. It's written into our DNA. And the very first, in this first point, I'm just asking, can you see this? Can you admit this about yourself? I mean, this isn't ivory tower type stuff we're talking about. Wallace said, there's no such thing as an atheist in the day-to-day trenches of life. There's no such thing as not worshiping. There's no such thing as not serving a king. It's an inescapable reality to life. We need a king. Now, second, let's look more directly at this passage together to see that we need the true king. We need a king but not just any king will do. We need the true king. Um, it, there's really no way to soft-pedal this, um, and, and the story in Luke puts it front and center for us uh, as, it regar- as it regards Jesus' claim to be the true king. Um, you and I know how easy it is to give lip service to Christianity, Jesus this and Jesus that, and all the while for Jesus to be on the very edges of our life, on the periphery of our life, not in the center. Uh, You know how easy it is to like Jesus from a distance but not really have Him at the center of your life, to give Him lip service but not actually take your hands off of your life and submit to Him as King. There is no way to soft-pedal this because Jesus means to force our hands on this issue with His claim to be the true King. Like, if you read the quote on the front of your bulletin, as it suggests, there is no middle ground here when it comes to Jesus. He's forcing the issue, yes or no. You're either going to crown Him or kill Him, but there isn't a third way. There isn't a third option available to you. He won't leave open to you the option just to like Him, but not submit to Him. He claims to be the one true King we need. Jesus, in this story, was on His way to Jerusalem, and so were thousands of others at this time, right? It was the Passover feast. And so all the, for centuries, the Jewish people had began making their way to Jerusalem at this time of year, that an annual pilgrimage for this feast. And in the midst of the crowd, right, in the midst of that crowd, Jesus was on a previously unridden colt, which we're going to say more about in just a minute. But I want to say right now, it was all very intentional and very symbolic and very prophetic. Because Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9 that we read earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. 
He was claiming to be the true king when he rode in on that previously unridden colt. On this pilgrimage to Jerusalem, Jewish people, as they were making their way along the roads, they would sing together the Psalms of Ascent. And those are Psalms 113, 118, if you want to look them up sometime. And in Psalm 118, verse 26, it reads like this, "'Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.'" And I want you to notice that the crowd definitely picked up on the symbolism and the prophecy here, right? They picked up on Jesus riding in on this colt because they weren't singing in verse 38 of our passage, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, but they were singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees understood it too. He was forcing everyone's hand here. Yes or no, crown him or kill him. And, he, and here are the Pharisees. You see how in verse 39, the Pharisees were rejecting Jesus. They were seeking to silence this claim. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And then we get this fascinating line from Jesus in verse 40, where he said, I tell you, If these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus was saying, I'm the one true king. And even if all these people are silent, all of creation would erupt in my praise. Because I am the one true king. Listen, and it does. Creation echoes with praise for this king. See if you can follow me here. Chesterton, again, he wrote, um, Fairyland is nothing but the sunny country of common sense. It is not earth that judges heaven, but heaven that judges earth. So So for me, at least, it was not earth that criticized Elfland, but Elfland that criticized the earth. I knew the magic beanstalk before I had, I had ever tasted beans. I was sure of the man in the moon before I was certain of the moon. Old nurses do not tell children about the grass, but about the fairies that dance on the grass. And old Greeks could not see the trees for the dryads. What are you saying? He's saying echoes of truth. Echoes of this king, the true king. They find their way into all of our fairy tales. It's inescapable. Even if they're silent, these stones will cry out. About the need to worship, again, Wallace said, on one level, we all know this already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. You try to silence Jesus' claim, but you can't. It's been codified, and it's the skeleton of every great story, every great fairy tale full of echoes of the true king you've been looking for all your life. I've said that last night we were reminded of all the old illustrations that I use all the time. This is another one that I, I, I'm riffing off of Chesterton a bit here, but, you know, poor cinder girls, when they're loved by the true prince, they become Cinderella's. And the oppressed in the dust, they are lifted up and seated with princes. Beauty has to love the unlovable beast before he can ever be transformed. Sleeping beauty's cold death, it can truly be softened to his sleep 
from which she awakes, but only when she is kissed by the true king and true prince. You can't silence the claims that Jesus is the true king. It echoes and it reverberates throughout all his creation. Silence these and the stones will cry out to praise Jesus as the one true king. He sang the universe into being. He breathed into being every star, every mountain, every river and sea, and the stones know the true king. Do you? Do you know the true king? He's a new kind of king. There is no middle ground with Jesus. There's no middle ground available to you this morning. Yes or no, will you crown him or kill him? Praise him or not, but his rightful claim is the true king will never be silenced. Third, I want us to see that we need the gentle king. You know, our lives testify that we need a king, as we've been talking about, but the many kings that we're often crowning in this life, they are harsh and cruel taskmasters to us. They demand a million deaths in their service. In this passage, the true king rode into Jerusalem on a colt. God wants you to know that the true king is a new kind of king. He is a gentle king. You know, I'm convinced that some of us, we're so familiar with this story that this image of Jesus on this previously unridden colt, it doesn't shock us the way it was meant to shock us, right? Yes, it's a fulfillment of prophecy in Zechariah, as we've talked about. But you've got to admit, at the very least, it's a strange prophecy that he would ride in on this donkey. I mean, kings don't normally arrive like this, right? Kings ride into cities on war horses. They come in on big, powerful animals. They come in with a show of their strength and their power, and they're bringing the spoils of their victorious power and conquest with them. In our world, right, they, they come in motorcades of, of black limousines with tinted windows and flashing police lights all around them, right? Kings and presidents, they don't travel, and this is no offense to anybody who owns one of these, but they just don't travel in Toyota Priuses. Um, it doesn't work like that. They come with a show of power. I mean, the image is supposed to make you do a double take and look twice and to scratch your heads and say, wait a second, what's going on here? What kind of king is this? He's a new kind of king. He's a gentle king. I mean, all of this was intentional and not accidental. I mentioned that in the last point. That's what these verses are teaching us. Uh, scholar William Lane points out that all of these detailed instructions by Jesus in verses 31 through 32, they point to the fact that Jesus had already made these arrangements with the owner of the donkey. Look, verse 28 told us that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, right? That was the first verse we read this morning. But you have to travel back 10 whole chapters to see when this journey began in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And a lot has happened since Luke chapter 9. A lot of time has elapsed, but none of it was accidental. It was all planned, 
and timed perfectly for Jesus to arrive in Jerusalem like this, and at this time, at the beginning of Passover week, riding on this colt, making his way into Jerusalem. The, this image of the true king on a colt was deliberate because do you remember what Zechariah said? Your king is coming humble or gentle, mounted on a donkey. He's the gentle king. Now, I'm going to, you know this, I, I'm a city boy. I didn't grow up in a farm or on a farm or in the country or anything like that. And so, I don't know much about farm animals or horses or donkeys or anything like that. But I've at least watched enough TV. Um, you know, I, I've watched enough Western movies to, to know this. Horses or donkeys that have never been ridden, they don't tend to like it when someone tries to ride them the first time, right? The first time someone sits on them, they try to buck that someone off, right? And I don't think they normally horses or donkeys, like screaming and shouting crowds around them, and people throwing coats in front of them and palm branches in front of them. They tend to spook at things like that, right? I mean, we know this. They have to, animals like this have to be broken in order to ride them. They have to learn to submit to the bit in their mouths, right, and the reins pulling on them. But not this cult, right? Not this cult, because this cult is in the hands of the true king. The gentle king is upon him. And under his hand, this unridden cult was at peace. Under his gentle hand, this cult became what it was meant to be. All those kings... We crown in life that end up oppressing us, right? That end up crushing us and enslaving us and forcing us to die a million deaths. But Jesus, He's a new kind of King. He's the gentle King, and only under His gentle hand will you and I ever become what He made us to be. It's a terrifying thought, I know for us to give up control of our lives. And maybe, just maybe, this is why Jesus encouraged His oppressed, crushed, and burdened followers like this. Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You don't just need a king. You need the true king, the gentle king. All right, last thing I want you to see in this passage, and we'll, I'll try to be brief here, but we need the crying king. You see this in verse 41, the cheers of the crowd in verse 41 give way to the tears of the king. He's a new kind of king. This pilgrimage to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, it ended on this stretch of road from Bethany through Bethphage uh, and up into Jerusalem itself. The actual road, it descended into this hollow or this valley because of this intervening, intervening ridge in between the two. And so, 
when the travelers, when they were in that hollow, they would rise up onto that ridge, and all of a sudden, the city of Jerusalem, the glorious city of Jerusalem, would just burst into view. And so there was Jesus and his followers, and they were traveling that road, and when they came over this ridge, the city burst into view, the city of Jerusalem. And when it burst into view, the true king, the gentle king, he burst into tears. And he wept for that city. Why did he weep? It's a bit too much for us to go into great detail this morning, but Jesus prophetically saw Jerusalem's fall, its demise, its future. Prophetically, he saw a time that was coming when the Romans would come in and crush the city of Jerusalem, and they would scorch it with violence, and the streets would run red with blood. And seeing the brokenness of his world, it broke his heart. As one author wrote, he came loving our fragmented world, and he wept over it. He's the crying king. Do do I even need to tell you this? This is the kind of king you need. One that weeps over your brokenness and the brokenness of this world. A king who weeps and bursts into tears at our tears and our pain and our sorrow and our fallenness and our brokenness. He's a new kind of king who weeps over our tattered and torn world and lives. He came to a world fragmented and broken because it was a world that had rejected him as king but I think you can see it in his tears. He didn't come to scorch this broken world in violence and fire and justice. He came with tears. He came to be cut down by the flaming sword of justice in our place. The kings you crown in this life, they will never weep for you. They will never die for you. They will always demand your death in order to get them. But this is a new kind of king, Luke is telling us. He came to die for you. He weeps for you. Jesus had deliberately chosen to come into the city of Jerusalem for Passover week. Jewish people had celebrated the Passover feast every year for centuries and centuries during this week. And it was a simple meal, right? There was bread. There was wine, there were bitter herbs, there, and the centerpiece of the whole meal, the main course, was a lamb. And it was a feast that they celebrated every year, reminding the people of a day when they were oppressed, when they were crushed, when they were un- enslaved under a tyrant of a king in Egypt. But God heard the cries of His people, and He came to rescue them. And to be their true king. Now, maybe, maybe some of you remember that story and how the lamb was the centerpiece of that Passover meal because the blood of the sacrificial lamb was painted on Israel's doorposts. And when God passed through Egypt, in his judgment, he passed over all the houses with blood on the doorpost, right? Hence the Passover feast. And so along with all the other Jewish people in Jerusalem, Jesus was there with his friends, 
his disciples to celebrate the Passover feast. And if you come and join us this Thursday night, this is a plug for our service on Thursday night, our Maundy Thursday service. If you come, we're going to celebrate that. Jesus' last meal with his disciples, the Last Supper on that Monday Thursday service. But here's what's interesting in all the gospel accounts of this meal. All the gospels describe Jesus eating this meal with his followers. Like I said, we call it the Last Supper. And all the gospel writers mention the bread and the wine on the table. But not one of them mentions a lamb on the table. Why is that? It's because the lamb was not on the table, but at the table. All the kings you and I bow to in this life, they will demand that we die to have them. This was a new kind of king. This king came to die for you to be the lamb sacrificed for you. And in just a moment, you and I are going to have an opportunity to come to this table to be reminded of that and to celebrate that Jesus, the true King, came to give His life for His people. He was the true lamb. And if you're a believer, and if you're a member in good standing of an evangelical church, you're invited to come to the King at this table, to feast on bread that is a sign and seal of His body given for you, to drink from the cup that is a sign and seal of His blood shed to cover all your sins. Come to this table this morning, and I encourage you to be reminded at this table that you need a king, you need the true king, you need the gentle king, and you need the crying king. And we celebrate Him together in this meal. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your servant Luke who wrote down this account for us. This triumphal entry of Jesus into the city of Jerusalem. Come riding on a colt, the true King the gentle king, the crying king. Father, we thank you for all you have done for us. We thank you for our Savior who lived, died, and rose from the dead in order to rescue us from our sins. Father, we pray that this good news would encourage your people today, that it would lift our hearts to see our King, to rejoice in Him, to know that we have life in Him because of His person and His work in our place. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.